In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. From conducting to composing, Gavin Greenaway has established his place in the world of film, television, and theme park music for three decades. I'm excited to bring on the composer behind Epcot's Illuminations, Reflections of Earth, and a conductor of countless Disney projects on today's Notably Disney. He's worked with the greats, among them Hans Zimmer, John Powell, James Noon Howard, and Mark Shaman. He is also the, leading the epic World of Hans Zimmer live tour, making stops all around the world. And did I mention that he's just a really thoughtful and generous individual? Let's head straight into my interview with Gavin Greenaway. Today's guest is a composer and conductor whose work has been heard across film, television, and theme parks. Gavin Greenaway's slate of dozens of projects over the past several decades is absolutely staggering, uh, ranging from conducting the scores for some of uh, DreamWork animation productions in the early years like Ants, Road to El Dorado, and Chicken Run, to conducting more recent hits in Hollywood more generally like uh, Dunkirk, Jason Bourne, and Interstellar. On the Disney front, as this is of course a Disney podcast, uh, he has conducted newer releases for the company, such as Solo, A Star Wars Story, which is a personal favorite of mine, uh, Mary Poppins Returns, and Captain America Civil War, as well as many others. Disney fans may know Greenaway's theme park scores for the late Illuminations, Reflections of Earth Spectacular, and the Tapestry of Nations Parade at Epcot, uh, two pieces of work that are really emblematic of Walt Disney World's Millennium Celebration. And today on Notably Disney, I'm really excited to bring on Gavin to discuss his process as a composer and conductor and many contributions to the Walt Disney Company for more than two decades. So welcome to the podcast, Gavin. Thanks, Brett. Thanks thanks for inviting me. Well, it's such a pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for many years, and I'm sure listeners have been too. And I'm hoping we can maybe begin by you briefly discussing your musical background and how you came to work as a both a conductor and orchestrator in Hollywood. Sure. Uh, uh, my father, um, when, when I was um, maybe six or seven, uh, my father was already a songwriter in the business, and uh, he was self-taught. He uh, wrote all his songs on a, a four-string ukulele, uh, and he played a very little bit of piano, And but he stopped writing now, he's retired. But he was quite keen for me to have uh, more of a formal education in musical terms. So when I showed an interest in the piano when I was about six, uh, I had piano lessons, as many kids do. And I got on very well. I enjoyed the piano. And uh, also then I learned the violin, which I got on less well with. I have to say I'm not a natural violinist. Uh, but playing the piano and the violin, um, I eventually got into uh, music college uh, trinity college of music 
in London, where I continued to study the piano, dropped the violin and started to study composition. And I have to say the composition I studied at college was maybe not so useful to me. Uh, I was always a, a bit of a maverick there. I liked more poppy sounds like my father and the professors there were very much into 12 tone and, and you know, very uh, modern classical compositions. So I didn't really fit in with that. But while I was there, I did meet some really interesting people, uh, one of them being John Powell. Um, and uh, when we we both graduated from college, um, we uh, had for some time the same music agent. So we got to hang out a bit more and, and that agent got me and him work on adverts, orchestrating uh, little uh, small orchestrations, usually for a small band. Uh, and eventually, after a few years of that, we um, got to be allowed to write our own music. And we, between us, we did hundreds of, of jingles for TV and radio and set up our own company in London, Independently Thinking Music. Uh, and not long after setting that up, uh, we got into work writing for TV. J John was um, uh, sort of started doing some films, and I, I did some episodic TV for BBC and Channel Four in the UK. And we got a call from Hans Zimmer in Los Angeles, uh, saying uh, we need some help out here. There's there's a, there's some a uh, lot of work in film that we need, and we we need more people. Would you be interested in coming out and helping us? And uh, we uh, thought about it for about five minutes and then uh, I said, yeah, sure, let's, let's find a way. So around about 96, about 96, we started to make trips out to Los Angeles and, and see if we could get work. And um, it was very slow at first, even though Hans was helping us, trying to get us gigs. And uh, we uh, again started by doing more orchestrations. I, I, I did uh, some orchestrations for um, Prince of Egypt, for the songs, and uh, so did John, actually. Uh, but then after a while, uh, we started to get offered more writing work, which is obviously uh, where we were both heading. Um, and John got Face Off, uh, which was uh, a big break for him. And around about that time, I had this epiphany where I realized that writing music for film, which I was, I have to say, you know, I was good at it. I was, I was giving the directors and producers what they wanted. I had this feeling that it just wasn't going to sustain me over the next 20, 30 years. And I remember going to Hans saying, um, look, I know I've got a studio, a, a writing room in, in your studio complex. And uh, I know you thought I was going to be writing for, for movies, but I think I need to do something else. And he was very helpful, actually. He said, yeah, that, that, you know, explore, find out what you want to do. So I, I wrote some songs and um, tried a few bits and pieces. And then in 98, I got uh, a call from him. I think he might even come through the room. He said, I, I, I've got uh, this great project for you. It's uh, it's for a theme park. And, and I'd never really thought about writing music for theme parks before, before that point. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I'd been to Disneyland, Disney World and so on. And, and uh, from a, even as the age, age of, a, you know, a, uh, even as a kid, I, I enjoyed the parks and I was aware of the music there, but I couldn't really <clears throat> envisage what it would entail until I heard it was writing the music for um, Epcot for their new uh, illumination show. Um, and so that, that kind of, that's what got me into writing uh, for, in, this, in this different way for, for Disney. Uh, and in, what I didn't find out until later was that uh, Hans had been offered the job, of course, and uh, he, for various reasons, didn't have time to do it. Uh, and uh, he sort of fobbed them off with me. And so I, I came into the situation very much the underdog. Um, and there was a number of, uh, not unhappy, but you know, they weren't thrilled the fact that this unknown was, was writing the music for, you know, for their new show. Um, and uh, so I had, I had nothing to lose from that though, because, uh, you know, I, I was coming from, from nowhere. 
the, I met with uh, Don Dorsey, the, the, the director in Anaheim. And uh, it's, it's funny, I, I'd forgotten a lot of this, but I, I met up with him a little while ago and we, we went over what happened. And, you know, Hans had already quit the job before he started. And uh, I met with Don and uh, he gave me a storyboard of, of, of the show as he envisaged it. And apparently I didn't take any notes. I said, oh, that sounds good, Don. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. And uh, I was really excited because I thought this is this is a great opportunity to make it really make a musical statement. And driving back in the car from from Anaheim, where Don uh, lived, I started to have ideas already for the beginning. And then the uh, I called him about three days after that saying, Don, I've got some really good ideas. And then I went absolutely silent for three weeks. They heard nothing from me for three weeks. And about after three weeks, um, I sent them the first demo with, with no fanfare. And it was, I'd say, probably about 80% of the music that you still hear now, um, or heard, as it's just closed, of course, um, you still hear in the show. And uh, Don was thrilled with that. And then we carried on working and um, uh, finessed it. He's, he's a very good uh, music producer. Uh, and finished it in a few weeks, and everyone was absolutely thrilled with it. Well, I can definitely see why, because it represents such an inspirational score. It's very emotional and resonates. Could you talk about some of the influences that shaped the direction you took with the score? Because I know there's a lot of world music and lots of different influences in there. I mean, I felt that the, the the style of it should be broadly orchestral because that's something that doesn't go out of date. Uh, and, you know, and even after 20 years, running for 20 years, it, it, I think it aged pretty well. Uh, if I'd used a lot of synths or, um, you know, popular music of the time, I don't think it would have lasted so well. There are hints at world music. There, there are, there's definitely some, some colours and sounds from around the world, but it's essentially... Um, based on uh, you know, a Western orchestral tradition. And I, I wanted to write a piece of music that worked outside. If, if you stand around the lagoon, you realize how huge this space is. And, and really the, the elements are against you. It, it can be quite windy, it can be quite noisy. Um, so I was thinking about writing music that was bold and uh, had a you know, very strong, uh, cohesive, flavor to it um one of uh, i suppose influences beethoven debussy a little bit of stravinsky but i i wasn't trying to push any boundaries uh harmonically or melodically i i wanted it to be something that uh, a six-year-old could hear for the first time and kind of get it um and in fact I, i've seen videos of, of you know uh maybe four-year-olds jumping up on their prams, you know, uh, during it and, and really sort of conducting it and, and getting into it. And I think it, it did find a way to speak to quite a, a wide audience. You never know when, when you're writing whether it's, it's going to translate in that way. But um, I just, uh, I was inspired, you know, I was inspired by the project and, and, and by the occasion. Um, it, it sounds like, as you're describing it, it, was a pretty organic process in creating the score. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, I mean, there, there were some corners that were particularly tricky to solve and, and took a lot of work, but and some which were very easy. Uh, my, my working method is, has always been to play the piano quite a lot, um, try lots of ideas on the piano, then maybe uh, go for a walk, go for a run or a drive, let the ideas percolate through my head, uh, work on the tunes in my head. I think it's very important to, to um, when, you're, when you're writing tunes, to, to really sing them, even if they're going to be played by instruments. You want them to have that, that feel that, that you could sing them, um, rather than getting locked into the way you play a particular instrument. So I would play the piano for a while, take some time away from the piano, make some sketches, and in the in the three weeks that uh, I spent on the first demo, um, I would say probably first couple of weeks were spent at my piano, and then I went into my studio and I had a, a as everyone at uh, 
the studio had then they had my, uh, a rack of synths and, and samplers and I just start to orchestrate into my uh, sequencer into, into my computer uh, and make a rough sketch of, of how it would sound um, and that's what I sent to uh, to Don and when, when I sent it obviously the first iteration didn't have the song at the end didn't have any words and that was something we worked on later so I have to ask given how strong this piece of music is are there times when you're composing a piece of work such as illuminations where you just surprise yourself in terms of the strength of the final product yeah we are always trying to impress yourself i mean that's the hardest thing is the hardest thing is to finish a piece of music and go that's everything i wanted it to be um you know you, you, as as you grow as a composer you're you, your, your sights get higher and higher and you, you, you try and push and maybe, uh, you know, in, in some respects you want simplicity and to get simpler and more clarity or, uh, you know, more depth of feeling. Um, I saw the, I went to Epcot and watched the last couple of shows uh, over summer and uh, it had been a while since I'd listened to the, to the piece and a long time since I'd seen it. And I have to say, I, I was still pleased with the way it it, it played. Um, and there were some bits in it which, if I were reverse engineering it now, I would be thinking, how, how did I write that? How, how did I get to that? It seems so um, right, and yet I've no idea how I did it. And I think that's the great, that's the great thing about composing, when you're in the flow and, and you're totally in the music. You can you can get on these paths that um, go deeper and deeper, and that sort of time um, that I was allowed to work on it and allowed to work on the ideas. Often you don't get in movies, and I think that's that's a, a problem that I was the reason I was was struggling with writing for movies was that the deadlines were so fast and quick, and in fact that I would say they're much worse now, you know, twenty years later people are having to turn around scores in two, three weeks sometimes. An insane amount of, of, of composing. And for me, the thrill of composing isn't just uh, the initial idea, which is obviously something. It's then being able to go back and um, chip away at it and, and really hone what it is you're trying to say. Uh, I'm not one of those composers like... Um, uh, you know, some composers, they just their first idea is it's perfect there it is it's fully formed mine tends to be rough around the edges and and it needs those added layers of um editing afterwards so um uh, that way of working worked really well for me as opposed to um working on, on the movies i hear what you're saying and what i really appreciate about the story that you relayed is it speaks to the importance of good connections because it's it sounds like uh Hans Zimmer really valued the work that you were responsible for and saw the promise in what you could create and ultimately that that played a big role in um, oh, yeah. getting yeah. illuminations if he hadn't trusted me to deliver then he would have uh, looked bad and we would have looked bad um so yeah he he was a great connection there and and also the the influence and the teamwork uh, I experienced with, with Don Dorsey on, on it was that Don was able to really act as a as both producer and also the audience. He knew in a way when that when there were things that were wrong structurally that just weren't working, and we would he would really give me a hard time over some of the the um, endings of sections and joins where he said no, it's just not flowing the right way, or it doesn't feel final, or it feels too final. And it was it was a really nice um, relationship we, we we had and we still have, um, because he understands music really well, uh, and yet he wasn't trying to take over and say no you must use these notes. He, he didn't get into the, those sort of technical details, but he did understand uh, in a way that very few people I've worked with that aren't also you know mainly composers do. Uh, so that that worked very well. In, in fact, he he Don, Don wrote the words to the the we go on at the end, um, and and the promise song, which which we derived from both shows, uh, which were was just um, 
a perfect match because again he understood what it, what we were trying to say um and, and and the other thing that that uh was was very heartening about the um the project for me was that i never actually met eric tucker who did who did the fireworks until i saw the show and he said that it was the easiest show he's ever had to make fireworks for because it told him the story exactly what he needed to do um and so that was that was nice to know that we'd, we'd hit something that another one one of the creators of the show was able to then build on that um and uh, add another layer without having to, to find a place to make it fit because after all it is a it's a spectacular so the fireworks are a major part of it right well it shows how everything fits so perfectly together with music and sound and lights and all of these visual effects that it's just i remember just being absolutely amazed by how everything was just ideal and and how it synced up together yeah it's it's a it's a it's a it's a nice piece um and i i know and this is you know playing my own trumpet a little bit but i know of at least three composers uh, who are who saw the saw the the show when they were young and it inspired them to become composers um which is a interesting thing to to feel that yeah that's not if that's not a tribute to you i don't know what is <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh i've, I've apologized to them of course <laughs> on on a, a, the rocky path but yeah it's i think you know if if you were 12 and you hadn't heard much and, and again a lot of people haven't heard much orchestral based music these days um maybe not enough people hear it in school or, or go to to orchestral concerts so i was able to expose uh, kids to uh, something that was uh symphonic uh, and yet accessible and, and what what an impact that must be i remember so i was just about eight years old when uh, mm. when Illuminations premiered. But, you know, the, f- the first context in which I remember hearing a portion of the score was actually not at Epcot, but rather via ABC News and their 2000 Millennium coverage. Yeah, they picked um, up on that, didn't they? Yeah, they yeah. were very pleased to be using that. And I, I didn't even know they had uh, used it at the time. Uh, but it uh, it struck a chord. I think it also speaks to corporate synergy with um, Disney owning ABC News and uh, leveraging it to uh, share a really monumental piece of music. And I don't know if if they're still using it, but until fairly recently, when when you arrived at uh, Los Angeles Airport, International Airport, the, the immigration uh, lounge, you they were playing it uh, as part of the uh, the music there uh, on a, on a loop in in. Um, uh, as people were about to go through the uh, Im- immigration. So um, you can't get away from it. <laughs> what might that be like for you to know that your music is not only being implemented in a theme park setting to make fe- people feel joyful and um, and at peace, but also as a almost like a welcoming to the U.S.? Yeah, it's quite funny as an Englishman to, to have written a piece that, you know, is seems to be so american uh it's it's great i i think as a a composer you really you just want to connect with people you want people to hear your music and i i'm very lucky that a lot of people have heard my music and i know a lot of people who are probably far better composers than me haven't had that luck or that chance or 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 it hasn't worked out for them and uh, so i'm i'm i I definitely I'm very grateful and thankful for that opportunity to have shared uh, my, you know, those, those tunes and, and, and that music with, I suppose, probably millions of people. Very impactful. I, I also want to really examine your work as a conductor. And I noticed on your website that you write, quote, uh, your focus is on delivering the composer's thoughts and ideas mm. often to a tightly defined cue without losing any of the energy or significance of the piece. Yeah. So yeah. could you, could you share how you have engaged in this collaborative process and maybe bring in some examples of Disney sure. films in the process? Sure. Um, the, the, the thing as, 
as a conductor not of your own work it's a different job than being a conductor of your own work uh and and the difference is you you don't you aren't you know, not being the conduct the composer you don't know for sure what the conductor what the composer wants i'm confusing the two of myself um and so my job as a conductor is to kind of get inside the composer's head and also then act to as a bridge between the composer and the musicians so I can speak in, in musicians language and composers language and get the closest to what the composer wants from their music to happen and that sometimes you have to protect the composer from themselves uh, in in the way they're going about doing something but more often than not the the important thing is to get that uh, dialogue going between the orchestra and the composer and if you do it right you sort of disappear it uh, often in my sessions people will say you, you don't seem to be doing very much but it's it's going very well what what are you doing uh, and I've I discovered when I when I started uh, conducting, sort of uh, as more than just a, a one-off thing, um, it was in fact my first film score I conducted. I think, I think it was Peacemaker for Hans uh, in '97. I could be wrong about that, but I hadn't really done much conducting at that point. And to be honest, I wasn't that great. Uh, I was trying to control every aspect of the music, every aspect of it. And what I slowly realized over the years was that you're, you have in front of you an orchestra. Let, let's just say, for instance, there, there's 40 people in front of you, smallish orchestra, 40 people. And on average, each of those musicians has, say, 25 years musical experience. And they are very, very good at their instruments. They've spent a lot of time and effort to get good. So you've got 25 years times 40. You've got a thousand people out, people's years, a thousand people years sitting in front of you of, you know, musical experience. So you, you ought to be pretty humble, really, in front of that. And I found that the more humble I became and the more I listened and allowed the musicians a certain amount uh, of, what was, autonomy to 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 um, create what needs to be created, then you can mould the last part of okay. So now we're playing really well. I'm watching the picture and and, and I'm I'm hearing the the composer's music. How do we move that to the next level? And th those things. That's where my comp composer's brain comes in. And you go this whole, for instance, you have a a, a scene and it's. Um, the music is playing, it's a, just playing a little bit too strong for the scene. And you, it, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's a, a simple dynamic fix. Uh, and often these things are simple. You know, when something works, it, it's, it, it, it works. And I'll, I can just say, okay, let's just play the whole thing, half a half dynamic quietly, more quietly. And I don't even need to consult with the composer. And then it'll just bring that added... Uh, connection to to the movie, so I'm I'm always trying to find the way to finesse those that final you know five percent out of the music that's already been written um, to make it work as well as possible with the with the movie with the musicians on my side, uh, and it's amazing what you can do when when you have that, uh, a team of people and, and you're not trying to show how clever you are, you're just everyone knows you're all trying to solve the problems of making the best out, out of the material. Um, so, and that, that's, that's a really, um, it's almost like psychology actually, if you think about it, you, mm -hmm. you're work, working with, with, with an orchestra. Um, you, you sort of have to make them do what you want them to do without saying, do it exactly like this. Cause no one likes to be told exactly everything to do you want to feel like you have some agency in the creation um so uh the right atmosphere in the studio is is key um uh, and then the other thing that that you, you can do as 
because I'm I'm in this in the recording room and the composer is in the control room, usually um, <clears throat> the composer can be dealing with the director and say the the cue or that piece of music is not quite what they are expecting. Uh, they can be putting out that fire while I'm making sure that every everything is going smoothly in the studio. So it it, it can be a very efficient way of working. Even with composers who are fine conductors, some sometimes they hire me because they, they just know it's a very efficient way of getting things done under a tight deadline. I see. And it sounds like, as you were describing your role as a conductor, in essence, you're helping, the, helping finesse the overall process in terms of certain uh, musical elements coming out more saliently at times and yeah. making the tone feel consistent. Is that... Uh, yes, I mean you're you're sort of acting very gently as uh, as a sort of as a almost like a producer of the score, even though that's not your job. You're still uh, and and one of the things that I I am very careful now is that I won't say everything that's in my head. If if something is wrong for a couple of times or it's something, I'll wait until it really starts to niggle me before before I wade in and and start changing things. And invariably, when I do, the composer will say, "Oh yes, that I was wondering about that or whatever." So. It's something that they it was just subconscious for them, but I just bring it out in, into the open, uh, but with, without taking over and saying, no, this is you know, my ego. This is the way I need to, I need it to be. It's not about me. It's about the music. So, uh, and as long as you keep it about the music, um, you, you, everything goes well. And as soon as you start to think, oh, I want this to be this way, you, you sort of lost it there at that point because um, you're not the composer. The composer's already set out the, you know, the, the building blocks to, to, um, to make the music the way they want it to be made. Sure, that makes very good sense. And I'm wondering, could you maybe uh, provide some anecdotes of working on some of these major Disney film projects? I mentioned uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story with well, yeah. John Powell, for instance. Yeah. Well, brilliant. So, yeah. It's a love lovely that. score, it's that. Um, and uh, we recorded uh, solo at uh, Abbey Road. And because it was a Star Wars film, and, and there's a tradition with the Star Wars film, I mean, obviously John Williams set the bar extremely high. And um, he is one of the composers, very old school. He you know, he works at the piano and then write, has an orchestration. Um, and then the first time you really hear it is is with the orchestra in the studio. And everyone plays all at once. It's the full orchestra, strings, woodwinds, brass, percussion, all together. Well, a lot of modern film scores, certainly if they have uh, electronic elements in, are not recorded like that. They, they, they tend to be recorded in sections. You might record uh, bef before the uh, session that all the electronic elements have been put down already to a click. Then you will record the uh, strings and woodwinds on top of that and then quite often the brass players come in in the evening and record their parts which means that they can play really really strong <clears throat> excuse me they can play really strong and not worry about getting in the way of the the, the strings and you get that very bright sound that we're often used to hearing in, in some of the more um, electronic scores but recording solo uh, John said no I want to do this everyone all together um, and where we can, we'll, we'll, we'll take some of it not to click, which means uh, then your job as a conductor is to keep the orchestra running the, at the precise tempo that fits the film still. And uh, it, it sounds simple, but I mean, if you're playing to a click, it's very easy. Obviously, the length is going to be correct, even though within that you can pull around the, the tempo a little bit, you're still fixed in length once you take the click away an orchestra will play at, you know a few percent faster a few percent slower because they're following your, your arm movement and, and a hand movement is never as precise as a you know an audio click so part of the job there is to, is to keep everyone on track but and this is where we had a lot of fun with, with john on uh solo you can push and pull the tempo in ways that he hasn't wasn't expecting when he made his demo in his studio and it can sound more musical so we did a lot of that where we would record 
everyone together, but with a click. So we got the, the tempo the way he wanted it, and he had a, a take that he was happy with. And then we turn the click off, and then we just play it, and we make music. And um, invariably, you hear the difference. You hear the orchestra breathe differently at the end of phrases, um, and you feel them listening to each other because they have to at that point because instead of listening to a click to stay together they have to listen to each other um and, and that's the, the the thing that people actually don't understand with with a conductor and orchestra you don't actually give the the beats <laughs> you think you do but what you're actually doing is inviting the orchestra to find the music itself and find the the, the tempo and and the the exact ensemble. So you are relying on the orchestra to play as an orchestra. Uh, and in that respect, you the, the more you try to control it, actually, the less musical it becomes. So you have to exert this very sort of, uh, it's, it's not magical, but it's almost like a, uh, some psychological control over how it all comes together without uh, being too prescriptive about exactly how it should happen. Uh, so yeah, we had a lot of fun with with Star Wars on that, just taking away the the the, uh, the click and playing, just play music. I I appreciate you addressing some of those misconceptions as well, because I think many individuals may have certain interpretations of what the role of a conductor is or is not, and you provide some clarification well, on that too. If if you watch a conductor in in, in a, a concert. Quite often, I will go. I don't know what, what this conductor is doing. Does, does it bear any relationship to what the orchestra is actually doing? You know, some, some, some. That there's two general types of conductors. I think there there are conductors that are inspirational, like uh, Leonard Bernstein, for instance, or uh, Dudamel, and there are conductors that are very, very technical, but less inspirational. And so you don't need to have the best technique to get to get a really good um, performance. And sometimes the, the best technical technique may not give you the best performance because it might lack a certain amount of um, uh, freedom um, and certain make sort of almost a, a danger where, where the orchestra are on, on their toes. Uh, so you... You you only conduct an orchestra with their permission. Right? That's the key to it, actually. Um, you 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 cannot certainly the days are over of of a conductor coming in really dictating exactly how everyone should play. People now tend to respect the musicians um, a little more and and say, okay, this is the way you play. Now let me see if I can mould it as an orchestra as a whole, the orchestra. So yeah, that, I think that's quite a good uh, phrase out that, that you only, um, you, the orchestra allows you to conduct them. And you, so you should know your place there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Could you maybe share some examples of favorite Disney film projects you've been involved in and maybe explaining what some of those qualities are yeah. in serving as a conductor that contribute to that effect? Well, last year, one I think you mentioned it earlier. One of my favourite all-time uh, recording experiences was was with Mark Shaman on Mary Poppins Returns. Um, he had previously recorded the the songs with another conductor earlier on, because obviously with a, a musical, you have to have the um, the songs recorded before you can film them. You can't put the songs on afterwards because how would you film the actors singing the songs so he had recorded the songs but the score still had to be recorded and he uh, chose me to to um conduct the orchestra and i'd never worked with him before and i was a little bit um worried because you know he's a formidable composer and uh he his his sense of harmony is, is second to none um Anyway, so we, we, we did uh, a session and then immediately sort of hit it off and got on very well. Uh, and he is really um, old school, I think, in, in, in respect. You know, all of his harmonies and melodies are very carefully crafted um, and make musical sense. You know, very much in the tradition of 
the classic Disney movies, like the, all the Sherman Brothers songs, obviously, which he uh, references in some respect in, in Mary Poppins. But, you know, that that very um, Broadway uh, style of, of, of songwriting. Um, and he, again, allowed me to just sometimes, not obviously we had to, to fit uh, time, so we couldn't always do it. But I think the whole of the end titles, we did just one take, uh, no click, loads of different tempo changes. By the time we got to that, he, he was trusting me to just do that with the orchestra. And that's such a thrill to, to um, hit it off with a composer. Uh, likewise with uh, Gabriel Jared, which, uh, which, who I worked with for the first time uh, uh, less than a couple of years ago, immediately got on really well. Um, uh, and, after, you know, very quickly you, you sort of get to not second guess, but to know what they're going to say and know what they're going to like and not like, uh, which makes the job so much easier. Um, and the, the thing for me about Mary Poppins was I, I love the original film, seen it so many times. And, and I thought he just did, uh, uh, and his lyricists, um, they just did a great job of respecting the initial, uh, you know, the source and creating some new songs, which I think are classics in, in their own right. And I'm a little disappointed that it's it's not uh, more, uh, hasn't done better. I think to, I think it will age well. I think people will come back to it and realise it, it's uh, it's more of a classic than, than they think. It's it's slightly suffered from being compared with the original, which of course you know is uh, that's a, a tough act to follow. Yeah, but I I would agree. I think both films have a certain degree of timelessness, and and the music carries that sentiment because it doesn't necessarily feel like it's uh, set in a particular era. There's certainly we know it's set during the early mid 1900s but mm. it, it feels like it's it just can exist across all spaces and and periods yeah yeah mm. and i hope I, I certainly hope there's going to be uh in the coming years there'll be a little uh, cherry tree lane area of the united kingdom at epcot and they'll have a, yes. a mary poppins area so i would imagine and hope that some of the score is utilized in that context yes well there's a lot of changes at epcot coming so um, we'll, we'll see that that would be a uh, really cool thing yeah. indeed so gavin what what types of projects or endeavors are you up to these days well this just recently uh the last uh, year or so i, I found myself a, as a touring musician something that i've never done before uh, and I didn't think I would like, but it turns out to be a lot of fun. Um, as I was saying earlier, you know, my first big break in Hollywood was due to Hans Zimmer, and I, I have conducted a lot of his scores. Um, and he asked me, <clears throat> what has it been, not last year, the year before, to uh, if I would conduct a, an orchestral tour for him of some of his favorite music that he didn't put into his solo tour. So uh, I thought, was well, this, this could be really boring doing the same concert every night, or it could be really interesting. We've done it about 55 times now. Uh, we've, we've taken this orchestra. We have about 16 in the orchestra, a choir of 16 and a band uh, like a, a you know, electric bass, guitar, drum kit, uh, woodwind specialist, solo violin, cello, keyboards, um, acoustic guitar. We've, we we take this concert and we've played um, all around Europe. Uh, we've played Spain, Portugal, France, Poland, Germany, Switzerland, the UK, Ireland, Sweden, Norway, uh, Denmark, all over. Uh, and... Uh, we uh, we're going to next stop in a couple of weeks' time. We we uh, we uh, go to Moscow and St. Petersburg and then Finland. Uh, and it's uh, this is a, an interesting job as a conductor because in the studio the the point of the studio is you only have to get it right once. You're you're trying to get you know often it's the first time you've played the music. Everyone's uh, that's that's something that um, a lot of people say to me. Oh, how long did you rehearse the music before you recorded it? in the studio and I said well no, no everyone turned up on the day we all turned up on the day looked at the music 
played it a couple of times and that's what you hear there's no pre-rehearsals for this you know this, that's the business but in a live concert where you you have only one chance to get it there's a definitely a, a thrill in in an orchestra and a big orchestra at that uh with a audience of 10,000 people you have one shot uh and so it's a different uh, it's a different vibe and it's a lot of fun i really enjoyed it um we had some some near misses of things have you know almost gone very wrong and there was, there was one occasion where actually i, I stopped we were playing um a piece uh, with solo cello with accompaniment and i stopped it because i realized the microphone on the cello had been off and the audience had been listening for an, a minute and a half just to accompaniment. And you know the old adage, you know, the show must go on. Well, I could have kept going, but I thought that's really not what we're here for. We're here to, again, serve the music. So I stopped it and I apologised to the audience. And I said, I'm really sorry. Uh, we're going to play this piece again because you're not hearing it the way it should be played. We got the mic fixed and uh, everyone loved it. And so it, that taught me a lesson there that... Um, Although you only get one shot at a live concert, um, actually, sometimes it's better to, if something's gone really wrong, stop it and start again. And because, you know, everyone wants the, a good musical experience, uh, not to struggle through with, you know, half the orchestra in the wrong place or whatever. So that's, um, that's been my, using up a lot of my time. Uh, and at the other end of the scale, uh, five, Nearly five years ago, I, I put out my first solo album of just piano pieces. Uh, and I've been spending most of my spare time now working on th that project of making really quite compact uh, pieces. As I, was, as I was saying earlier, you know, you try, sometimes as a composer, you, you're striving not to get bigger, but to get more concise and to actually get, uh, get to the point more quickly which I struggle to do speaking sometimes. Uh, but with the piano music, um, I'm really trying to hone that in to, to be the most efficient and uh, uh, effective it can be. And I, I put out my second album almost a year ago now, which is, again, piano, but it's, it's layered piano. Uh, and the, the rule there for me was that only one instrument, just the piano, although it's layered, uh, no orchestration from strings or whatever just see if i can make it work with that uh and uh, tell a story that way wow so so no shortage of creative endeavors on your list there's always things to do musically and, and that's the, the wonderful thing is that um i've been very lucky to get to where i've got to in my career and one of the things that is brilliant now is that i know a lot of people a lot of people know me so um i'm always being asked to do interesting things um yeah. And any time, any spare time I have, I, I put it into my own projects, which uh, don't make any money in, in the way that you know, I, I couldn't live off my, my, my piano works at the moment. But uh, that's not the point. I do them for myself and as, as a, you know, to keep everything else fresh. Right. Well, and that's so important. And I love the anecdote you relayed um, about uh, conducting the, the Zimmer concert in regards to that little mistake and or that issue i should say and you know repeating it because it kind of i think it speaks to character and quality in wanting to be able to deliver the best possible product or experience for an audience yeah i think it's it's so important you know it's in anything we do uh music art um anything uh, you know diy at home I, you, I i strive to do it the best i can because what what's the point in just doing a, a shoddy job it, it, it doesn't seem it only takes a fraction more effort to do a really good job uh so i, I always and i always say to my kids you know let's let's do this the best we possibly can and you know sometimes you fall short and that's fine you don't things don't always work out great but at least going with a mindset of Let's do this the best we can. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. And before we conclude, I want to make sure we quickly attend to some Disney music-related questions. Sure. So first up for you, Gavin, is what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? While growing up? 
Uh, I would have to say Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We watched that film so many times as, as, a, as a kid and uh, uh, listened listen to uh, the recording. Um, that was uh, that drove my parents mad, I think, eventually, <laughs> listening to that. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, that, yeah. yeah, that was that was Sherman Brothers and Dick yeah. Van Dyke. Not actually Disney, but still very much having that sentiment of a Disney film. It's not a Disney film. I always thought it was. That's funny. I know, right? Because it has some of those essential qualities. Okay. Uh, well, then let me let me pick let me pick an actual <laughs> Disney film. Then um, the the one that sticks with me most, and it, it's one that um, I we played uh, when when the kids were growing up as well, was Pinocchio. Um, and I think was that the second animation that yeah, Disney, second. absolutely. So there, there is it. It seemed j- just to to hit its stride with with the the songs and the story, and that uh, and the, and the, the storytelling. Uh, and I never tire of, of listening to that and, and watching that. And the, and the songs are not Sherman Brothers, but the songs are um, just uh, timeless. Yeah, I kind of agree with you more there. Gavin, is there a Disney song that recently got stuck in your head? Uh, is a Disney song that got stuck in my head? The um, well, I have to like anyone. All the the Frozen songs were, were in my head for a while, <laughs> but um, yes. the, uh, I was recently on a plane and I saw uh, not ideal conditions. I saw the 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 new uh, the live action remake of Aladdin. And um, what, I forget the title. Um, da dee da 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 dee da 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 dee da. That's oh, Prince Ali. Yeah, that I I remember getting off the plane, and for days afterwards, that song was running around my head. Um, I think that's Anna Menken. Uh, in the, yes. Uh-huh. That those songs are, are fantastic in that in that film, um, and so catchy, so catchy. Um, yeah, so that song, more rather than Whole New World, that song got stuck in my head for days. And the funny thing was, it would come back and I I'd, I would forget where it came from. So, you, you know, you've got the tune running, running. What is that? What is that? And then finally some words would come through. You go, oh, I, I remember now. It's a toe tapper, that's for sure. It really is, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested. Did, did, how, how did you feel the um, uh, the, re, the live remake compared with the, uh, the animated version? Did, did you, was it odd for you or did it? work just as well it's funny you asked that because i actually rewatched it a couple of nights ago um for right. subsequent viewing i for one thought it was a really beautiful adaptation and it extended the narrative and you know certain yeah. uh, certain renditions of the new songs worked better than others but overall i thought it was extremely entertaining yeah i i did too i i, I think the problem is you 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 miss the things that aren't there but then you, you sometimes you underestimate how much the new material adds adds to it. So um, I think it's a, a very good adaptation. Very yeah, good. yeah, yeah. And I definitely like the extended version of Arabian Nights, which is mm. the opening song that they definitely fleshed out for for this new version. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, so the last music question for you is: What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music underrated music wow um that's a typical question it could be scores as well it doesn't have to just yeah, be songs you know that the, there's i'm thinking of scores that, that they tend to be so good i mean you know it's, it's it's hard hard to um find one that is kind of missed by by other people people pick up on them so well um yeah um I mean, this this John Scorter solo is actually probably more highly rated than than the film in some ways, um, mm-hmm. which is a, a shame because uh, it's not a bad film. Um, I'm struggling with that one. Uh, we could call solo. <laughs> I feel yeah, like that score is fantastic. But yeah, um, I think now I think it's partly a, a, a function of of just time and, and, the, and the age of it. But the impact that Fantasia had is possibly lost now on film goers. You know, the, 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 
boldness to the concept and the use of the music. Um, I'd like to see that um, again, actually, because that, that must be, what, 80 years? Yeah, just about. Is it something like that. Uh, and has, it, has anyone done anything like that since with, with, with classical music? Uh, I remember yeah. when, when I was growing up, often on television, they, they would do clips of like the Sorcerer's Apprentice part. And um, don't see it anymore. I don't see those, those sort of clips anymore. And I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if it's out. Sometimes Disney uh, kind of withdraw things, don't they? So they're not available. Uh, well, I think the impact of that has possibly been is, is underrated in terms of uh, what it achieved. Yeah, I'd, I... I'd love to see someone now do you know a a, a music-driven animation, a more like you know less story-oriented and, and a more abstract. Uh, uh, it, it feels in a way that maybe that boat has sailed and that we need things that are very snappy and quick and, and you know, instant and witty. Uh, slightly miss, miss that other, other way of doing things. Yeah, no, I appreciate you touching on that. I think the closest we get to that these days is through some of the Pixar shorts and how many of them are music-driven and using experimental animation to convey a story. That's true. That they are charming. Some of those Pixar shorts, and 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 the um the music is is invariably um driving it. Um, yeah, indeed. Well, last question for you. This is uh, a random Disney question that I mix up with every guest. Yeah. What what Disney character do you most admire, and why? Ah, uh, Disney character. Um, I. I'll answer it slightly differently. And, and, and the, I always identified very strongly um, with Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. Uh, as I say, we watched the film so many times and I was always really scared of, of the... Um, uh, it's the fox, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Or was it a wolf? I can't remember. Right now. But the, the, the idea of... Um, that conscience and the fact that you know at a deeper level it's 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 inside all the time you know and it, it, it's it's um it's intrinsic to to pinocchio that, that uh, um there's this little guy that is uh, trying to keep him on track so that little voice in your head i think i think I've, I've very much identified with that as i was growing up because there's always a dialogue isn't there of, of what can I do? What what can I get away with? And you know, what do I want rather than what what's the best thing to do? Uh, so I think uh, he's a character that um, really st- stuck with me, sticks with me. That's a fantastic answer. There's a little uh, exhibit in both Disney California Adventure and. Um, it used to be at Hollywood Studios in Florida where uh, you basically figure out which Disney character you're most like based on a oh. series of questions that you fill out. And invariably, yeah. the one I always got was Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Birds of a feather. Uh, finally, Gavin, how can listeners follow your work and or get in touch with you on social media or your website? Yeah, um, my website is www.gavingreenaway.com easy one there uh, <clears throat> and if you want to follow me on Instagram I think it's Greenaway Music uh, but if you go to the website you'll there's links there to find it so it's uh, easy enough to yeah it's Greenaway Music yeah on Instagram <clears throat> Perfect. Well, Gavin, once again, this was such a thrill and pleasure. I appreciate you sharing your very many experiences across your roles as a conductor and composer and working on film and theme parks. It's really quite a catalog that you have accomplished over the years. So thank you again. Thanks, Brett. We've traveled through time and different Disney spaces with Gavin Greenaway. And what a great ride it was. Really enjoyed 
that conversation. Hope you did too. Thank you again, Gavin, for taking us on that journey. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.